Hello, everybody. Welcome to another Comic Source Comic Boom collaboration. Happy Valentine's Day. This is your DC Spotlight for February 14th, 2023. Uh, solid week. Um, yeah, I thought it was pretty good. We've got the return of Swamp Thing, Green Hell, which God, I, I don't know what happened, but man, that thing was been delayed forever. I forgot it even existed, to be honest. Uh, yeah, it's returning. yeah, we also have the end of Batman Beyond the White Knight. And a new milestone miniseries, Icon versus Rocket, kicks off, or Icon versus Hardware rather, kicks off. So, yeah, I thought it was a pretty solid week. What'd you think, Rock? Oh well, uh, I'm going to I'm going to say that uh, I enjoyed uh, precisely I would say four titles this week. And since we have actually, yeah, we have ten titles, so I'm only batting forty percent. Four out of ten that I really liked. The other ones I thought were very meh. But uh, but we'll get into it, and uh, you know, again, I just what's that? We had nine book, nine books: Batman Incorporated, I Am Batman. Blog well, the adventure. There's Blog Batman: Cat. The Adventure continues. Oh yeah, I haven't been reading that. Yeah, so. I, I didn't. Uh, you know, it, it was okay, but uh, no, I the, the Swamp Thing, Green Hill, Batman, the the, the final issue of Batman Beyond the White Knight, and. I've been liking Wildcats and I've enjoyed Danger Street. I thought were okay. The other ones I thought were, I've got some, you know, constructive criticism on some of the other ones and some not so constructive criticism, but we'll get into it as we always do and have some fun. <laughs> yeah, I'm curious. You didn't mention Batman Incorporated, so let's kick off there. Uh, no More Teachers Conclusion. Writer Ed Brisson, John Timms is the artist. Rex Locust does the colors. Clayton Cowell on letters. And as we sort of suspected, you know, the truth of what happened between Phantom One and Ghostmaker isn't really the way Phantom One portrayed it to be. But it, I wouldn't exactly go so far as to say Ghostmaker's innocent. We're certainly reminded in this issue that the guy has killed in the past. And for whatever reason, it's never really been clear to me why he made the promise to Bruce, why he made the promise to Batman that he would stop killing and, you know, try to turn over a new leaf. Now, we know this is a newly created character, but, you know, retroactive continuity, retcon places him in the DC universe for decades, trained with Bruce while Bruce traveled the world, learning the skills he needed to become Batman. It's problematic uh, because he hasn't shown up until now. So he still feels like a new character, but yet we're supposed to believe that he's been operating in secret all this time. And so, yeah, there's a disconnect there for me with, again, why? what's his motivation? Why all of a sudden is he going to stop killing? Why all of a sudden now does he want himself or is allowing himself to be seen and to be out there and to be known? Not that he's out there you know, day-to-day -day public, but he certainly isn't being secretive the way he was, although, of course, we know – the reason he was so secretive, he wasn't showing up anywhere is because he didn't exist. Um, so, yeah, it's, it is an inherent problem with retcons. It's why I don't like them um, when you go back and introduce somebody as, as intrusive to Batman's origin as Ghostmaker is. Like, he's an inherent part now. Like, if you buy into what Tynan established, um, they can't be separated any longer. Um so, yeah, and, and just the way that he, he acts, what he's done, like, would Batman really forgive that? Uh, you know, we see the problems that Batman has with Jason Todd, and he's done nowhere near the number uh, or amount or, uh, of killing or brutality that Ghostmaker has. And to have this guy leading Batman Incorporated, 
you know, even the other members of Batman Incorporated, you know, when, when they heard Phantom One's story, obviously they had reservations. They were given Ghostmaker the benefit of the doubt. As I said, the truth is somewhere in the middle. Ghostmaker is not completely innocent, but it, it's not, um, you know, the way that, that Phantom One portrayed it as a betrayal and leaving him for dead. I mean, Phantom One wasn't doing what he was supposed to do. He was choosing to put himself in danger and Ghostmaker, rather than choosing to save him, chose to save the 10 innocent lives that were endangered by the building blowing up rather than Phantom One. And Ghostmaker's point to Phantom One, if you would have done what I told you to do, you never would have been in danger in the first place. Um, but, you know, then the whole thing comes, uh, do you blame Ghostmaker for turning Phantom One into his sidekick or for training him, for put him in, putting him in harm's way? Because um, we know Ghostmaker was the one that killed Phantom One's parents and orphaned him in the first place. So, yeah, it's it's problematic. It's problematic when you start talking about this is somebody Batman trusts. And again, as I was saying, even the other members of Batman Incorporated are, you know, like, wait, Batman put you in charge? Like, why? Is, is it is it maybe because he wants him to, to learn responsibility, wants him to have other people depending on him so that he'll value their lives more? Like, I, I don't know, but it, it doesn't feel fleshed out. You know, it feels sort of slapdash when it comes yeah. to feels Batman. rushed. It's rushed. Yeah. Well, I don't know that I'd say rushed because again, it, it might not necessarily be something they're thinking about. And, and this series doesn't feel rushed in terms of, you know, writing or art. I think the, in mm. terms of the scripting, it's, I'm a big fan of Ed Brisson. I think the art is fantastic here. So it doesn't feel rushed in that way. It just feels like editorially it's like, Hey, it's Batman, Batman sells. Let's throw this idea out there because it'll sell and it works. It still feels slapdash. Nobody's nobody editorially wise has stopped to think, well, we need to explain why Batman would be willing to let Ghostmaker lead this team. They're not thinking that, you know, that's too, I don't know, too much a part of the behind the scenes stuff, I guess, in a way, yeah. you know, they're just, they're, again, it doesn't, it, and it's not, any different from a lot of DC titles. It just, there's no cohesive editorial plan. It feels like. So again, it's like, well, this will sell. It's got a lot of characters, right? We've talked about that extensively. Um, so if some of these hit these early issues of Batman incorporated, maybe worth money. Some of these characters hit uh, for a lot of first appearances. Um, and so again, it, you know, it's pulling in readers. It's exciting. The art's good. And as long as you don't dig too much into motivation, you know, maybe you're really enjoying it. But for me, there's just that disconnect there. The thing I'm just not understanding, like why Bruce trusts Ghostmaker so much? Why, um, why he's being trusted to lead Batman Incorporated? And don't get me wrong. I, I was a big fan of Ghostmaker from the beginning visually. I've never been a big fan of the character in terms of his motivation. And, and I hate the idea of the, the, the retcon. I just, I just don't like it. It's the same reason that I have a hard time with the court of owls. You're supposed to have me believe that Batman is the world's greatest detective. Yet there was this secret organization that has been operating in our, in uh, Gotham city since its foundation. And Batman never knew about it until Scott Snyder introduced them. No, I don't, I just don't buy it. You can't reconcile world's greatest detective with, something secret 
that was operating for decades and Batman didn't know about it. Same reason I don't buy into the invisible mafia in Metropolis that Bendis created, right? You're telling me that Superman, because these people met in lead-lined little tubes, Superman didn't know about the this crime organization in right, operating right under his nose? Remember that John Byrne story? It was early on in the Byrne run with the Joker. And the Joker was like, yeah, I trapped three of your uh, closest friends in these lead coffins and one of them has a bomb and they're going to die. You won't have time to save them all. Yeah. And, and Superman's like, actually, Joker, you helped me out. I can't. It's not that I can't see lead. I just can't see through it. So he scanned the whole city with his x-ray vision and he you know, saw, found the three coffins because they were the thing that he couldn't see through. It yeah. actually helped him. It's the same thing with Invisible Mafia. If they were meeting in those lead-lined tubes, that's going to be even more suspicious Superman. Why are they – why are these lead uh, – Yeah. You know – rooms being being constructed somebody's yeah. trying to hide something from me yeah it's the exact opposite you're, you're trying to impose thing. you're imposing logic on a bendis storyline what are you what are you doing yeah well i mean it's the same thing it's the same thing here I'm, I'm 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 trying to understand like batman is a very logical person right batman and mr spock right maybe the two most logical fictional characters in uh in all of fiction sherlock holmes maybe throw him in there as well yeah. um yeah why is Ghostmaker the one to lead this team? We've never gotten that answer. And maybe we're going to get it. You know, I don't want to sell everybody down the river and say they haven't thought about it, but it, it certainly hasn't made any sense to me so far. So anyway, um, I'll shut up. Let's hear what you have to say, Rocky. What do you think? Well, uh, just to build a little bit on some of your comments there, uh, Batman Incorporated is, uh, I think that the sense that I got, and and but I, I agree that it wasn't elaborated on as much as it could have been, was that, you know, Batman wants to, you know, he has a history with uh, Anton, with Ghostmaker, and he wants to, he wants, he's giving him an opportunity to prove himself. Uh, they have a past together, together and he wants, he, he, he gets a sense that Ghostmaker, Ghostmaker at the, when Ghostmaker was introduced, he was, he was killing. He shows up in Gotham City, he was Batman's equal. And then at the end of that, you know, I think it was a five or six issue story arc, all of a sudden Ghostmaker flips and all of a sudden he's agreeing that he's not going to kill because he respects Bruce Wayne again. And, and then I think maybe what writer Ed Brisson here for Batman Incorporated, or pardon me, yeah, Ed Brisson, I was right. <laughs> uh, I think what he's relying on is we, we did we, we did get a history. We did get an origin of uh, the foundations of Bruce Wayne and, and Anton Grossmaker's relationship with uh, Batman uh, the Knight uh, by Chris uh, by uh, Chip Sardaski. Sardaski. And so I think we're we're getting some sense of who Ghostmaker is. Uh, but but I, I agree with you that it is rather interesting that, you know, Batman, I'm sure Batman behind the scenes is keeping an eye on Ghostmaker because part of the, part of what Batman Incorporated, when Batman got members to join Batman Incorporated, it, he, he took a chance on some of the members of Batman Incorporated because some of them were inclined to use lethal force. So the proclivity of various members of Batman Incorporated to use lethal force was at times in question early on, if you go into Grant Morrison's early run when Batman Incorporated was being formed. So the question of lethal force has always been at the forefront of Batman. The other thing I want to bring up is, and I've mentioned this before, and we, and you can, we all recognize this, over the last five to ten years, Batman has gotten less and less dark, grim, and gritty. 
He's become more of a family man. He's become less of a loner and more of a family man. And now that's been reflected in his origin with Ghostmaker. Now, it wasn't just Bruce Wayne all by his lonesome, wandering the earth, you know, in the lost years, trying to, you know, learning martial arts and learning how to be a detective. Now he actually had, he's had a lot of contacts, a lot of, you know, it's it's like his, he's much more of a f- extended family man, but he's got more contacts as well. So that just seems to be the Batman of a new era as we move away almost from the grim and gritty Miller interpretation to a more, shall we say, more broader Batman. Having said that, directly into this issue, Batman Incorporated issue five, uh, there's still too many characters here. I really strongly wish that we had th- that this would be played out at the beginning. At the, I wish at the very beginning we would have a who's who on the very first page because there are so many, so many different Batman analog characters. There's there's Ghostmakers, there's Ghostmakers uh, characters, and then there's uh, Phantom Ones crew members. So we got the crew members of Ghostmakers Batman Incorporated, and then we got the crew members of Phantom Ones team. And honestly, other than Clownmaker. Uh, clown clown hunter I cannot off the top of my head recall a single name of a member of the other team because I didn't write them down and I have to write them down I shouldn't have to this is I'm sorry but it's editorial laziness and it's laziness on the part this as a writer you want to get people to buy your book they should even on the covers quite frankly you should have you you should do like the classic covers with JSA JLA. Have the heads on the sides of the covers and, and just or on the opening page something to to get us invested in these characters because they all look like literally it's like getting ten people together and saying okay now dress up like uh, a crazy version of either Batman or a Tiger Man and you pretty much are going to get every single character of these two teams. It's just too much and ultimately these teams are too bloody much alike. They end up fighting to a stalemate here. Uh, Phantom One wants Clown Hunter to kill uh, Ghost uh, Ghostmaker. He doesn't. Ghostmaker tells another version of the story that's different than uh, than uh, than than what Phantom One said. And uh, I want to note one key difference here: that remember what happened when Jason Todd, when Joker killed Jason Todd. This is very significant in my mind. When Jason, when Jason, when the Joker killed Jason Todd, but Jason Todd came back. Why was Jason Todd pissed off at Batman? He was pissed off at Batman because Batman never killed the Joker out of revenge for killing him. And here we have Phantom One died at the hands of Palladium, or Palladium, or whatever his name is. And he comes and and Ghostmaker actually kills Palladium. Ghostmaker does kill the bad guy that killed Phantom One, but Phantom One is still pissed off. <laughs> so that's what. So Ghostmaker very clearly has a past where he has killed in revenge of one of his own sidekicks, and his sidekicks are his sidekick is still pissed off. So whether you're Jason Todd's dysfunctional relationship with Batman, you can juxtapose that against. Phantom One's relationship with Ghostmaker because there are some differences there. And in any event, this ends in a stalemate. The teams go their separate ways. Phantom One has to bleed out, so they, they take him off the scene. And th- there's a lot of action here, a lot of dialogue, but ultimately these two teams end up in a stalemate. And unfortunately, you know, at the end, it gets a little frustrating. One of the Batman, whose name I literally forget, and the names are far too common, far too similar. They look far too much like these characters. But they, there's another group that we meet at the end. And it's like, oh, my God, <laughs> we're going to meet another group next issue. And I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to continue to struggle uh, to remember all these names. And again, that's on me. But 
there has to be you, you gotta you, you gotta to me it's like jail just justice society justice league monitor duty you gotta get rid of some of these players only have two or three at a time in, in my opinion because this just doesn't work out very well uh there's just too many moving parts but you know ed brisson does a commendable job but you, you, again, you, we need more help as readers in my mind, but you know, maybe somebody will disagree with me and tell me I'm just getting too old and I need to improve, uh, maybe pop some, uh, what do you call it? Those biloba, those, what are those pills to improve memory? But in any event, I, uh, it's not a bad story, but it's still just too many players. Uh, it could be so much better if they just eliminated, uh, you know, at least half the characters here just to tie things up, tidy things up. Sorry, you're you're on mute. It's not a who's who necessarily, I was saying, but, you know, they, we do have that page in the middle, page 14, I think it is, or on digital anyway, it's 14. And we do have the, you know, the orange Batwoman there, and she's going, she's naming them Got off, it. you know, Grey Wolf, Fissure, <laughs> Fallen. So, but yeah, I, 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 I tend to agree with you. There, there, are, there are a lot of... A lot of moving parts here. And maybe it's a product of us, the fact that we read so many comics. If we were just reading this, maybe we could we keep it straight. But, yeah, it looks like another big team coming coming next week, uh, next month, as you said. Yeah. Uh, all right. Up next, we have I Am Batman, issue number 18, Motherless Child, part three. John Ridley is the writer. Christian Doucet handles art duties along with Eduardo Panseca on pencils and Julio Ferreira on inks. Handling some of the pages, Rex Locus on colors, Troy Petrie on letters. Uh, this is the end of the the motherless child story arc, as I said, where Jace Fox learns that who he thought was his mother is not actually his mother, uh, and, and he rescues his mother from I don't know a crime lord, a terrorist, a domestic terrorist. I don't know how you want to describe King here, but a lot of action in this one. Uh, and while it was enjoyable, this is probably the most cliched story I've ever read from Ridley of anything he's ever done. Yeah. <laughs> um, we did get introduced to the, you know, a female character at the end of last issue and she looked like the question, obviously not Renee Montoya. Clearly she has links to Renee Montoya, links to the question legacy um, because it's mentioned, you know, several times. Uh, but who she is apparently is going to remain a mystery, and I do I do like that. I don't mind being introduced to new characters as long as they don't shove it down our throat that it is a mystery, a la Red X. But if this character shows up now and then, and we don't know who she is, I'm okay with that. Again, as long as it's not taken away from the main story, and the idea of the mystery of who it is isn't being, um, you know, constantly thrown into our into our faces. But getting back to this idea of a cliched story. At one point, when Jace Fox yells at him, King, you're done. And he says, no, I'm like, I knew before I even read the next line. He's like, nah, I'm just getting started. Like, really? Really? Is that really the dialogue you want to write for this, Ridley? Because again, how many times has a, a hero or a protagonist said, you're done, you're finished, whatever. <laughs> oh, I haven't even gotten started yet. Like, that could be maybe the most overused line in the history of storytelling, maybe. Uh, maybe with the exception of Once Upon a Time. But yeah, just really, really cliched, as is him going to kill Jace Fox's mother, his her his actual biological mother, mother 
who he's holding hostage to Jace freaking out and probably going, you know, over the line, beating on King. And then of course his mother stepping in to say, no, stop. He's had enough. Um, yeah, it just, the entire thing just felt really kind of predictable paint by the numbers um, with the way the, you know, the final confrontation with King played out to Jace, you know, leaving the, the Fox family apartment in Manhattan. I need to figure things out, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, yeah, not my favorite issue, not not the strongest in terms of story. There are elements that I liked. Uh, I like the moment between Jace and his biological mother. I'm intrigued by this new mysterious quish, uh, female question. Um, but for the most part, yeah, just really kind of predictable. Um, again, not I wouldn't say it wasn't enjoyable, but it was all very paint by the numbers. Um, and to be honest, I, just, I expect a little more from Ridley's writing. Uh, but the art is really strong uh, from Ducey and Penseca and, and, uh, and Ferreira. So that it continues to shine. And I, I would still say, even though this felt like a little bit of a down issue in terms of quality, I'm probably enjoying I Am Batman more than either the regular Batman title or Detective for sure right now. So what do you think? I... Was that so that that mysterious character was not Renee Montoya? It was not. No, uh, because uh, then uh, then I disliked this comic even more than I initially did, <laughs> because I, I have no idea. I, I think that unlike you, I I'm, I'm extremely upset. This is the final issue. I am. I'm very upset that we don't know who this character is. I mean, he's he's down and out. He's finally battling King to f- save his biological mother. His sister Tammy's with him. She's a vigilante. We've met her. Now, all of a sudden, out of the blue, we have this character that supposedly is a question wannabe. Where did she come from? What does that have to do with Raymond? If it's not Renee Montoya, then who on God's green earth could it possibly be? And I hope it's not his girlfriend, Haida, uh, or uh, Haid. I, I don't know. It looks it looks like a cool character. She throws these, she seems to have these little things that she's throwing, but um, you know, where'd this character come from? I, I'm, I found came, it. Sorry. She came from the last page of the previous issue when she just showed up. Oh, okay. So uh, fair enough. And then uh, I, I, yeah, no I, I barely remember that, but I mean, it, fair enough. I would have thought that was a good cliffhanger. So now who is she? Now we'll never know. Are we supposed to care now? I guess we're supposed to now. Now I guess we have a first appearance of an unknown character. This is as frustrating and talk about not learning. I mean, talk about taking a, a narrative habit and making it worse because we're, we're getting the same nonsense with the Lazarus Planet, Lazarus Planet anthologies where we're just info dumped and we're just suddenly given all these characters and very little information on them. Some of them not even given their names. And this is sort of like the dawn of the DCU where we're, they're just dumping all these characters uh, who are with, with no background information, no organic buildup toward them whatsoever. And then I guess we're just going to have to hope we get some good stories about these new characters that, that we're just sort of forced to get to know in very short stories. I, I don't like that. Uh, maybe it's, you know, I, it is what it is. But I, I was frustrated because I've been enjoying this. You and I probably have been more favorable in our reviews of I Am Batman than a lot of people have been. We've been giving John Ridley a lot of benefit of the doubt. I still compliment him on his character development on the Fox family. I like the fact that Jace here, Jace here, uh, who, who his biological mother calls Tim, because he, he changed his name from Tim Fox to Jace Fox. Well, he was born Tim Fox, and his mother, biological mother, uh, Alina here, or 
uh, yeah, Ellen here gives him his name, and she actually prevents him from really beating up the this king villain. And so there's some nice moments here. There are some nice character moments here that I want to give really uh, some kudos for. I just wish, you know, maybe in fairness to him, he doesn't have not time enough time to really flush all this stuff out. But I noticed how much of a like Jay, Jace Fox here. He basically he he's very hard on his parents. He basically leaves. He leaves his parents. He leaves Lucius Fox. He he moves out, and and there, his 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 stepmom, or I guess his the mother he grew up raised him with Lucius Fox. Basically, is crying as he leaves. He's pretty hard on them. He he appears to be unforgiving. He doesn't really. Uh, he would have battered King probably to death had his had his biological mother not stepped in. I still see Jace as a very flawed character. That makes him interesting. I don't see that in, as a negative. I just kind of like the fact that, no, he still has work to do character-wise. And I kind of like that. Jace Fox is a little darker. He's a little bit more prone to violence. He doesn't always control himself as much as he gives himself credit for. He needs help. He needs the question's help or this new character's help. Even his sister is standing by him, but he's still a work in progress. And I like that about Jace Fox. And just when I, I feel that there's a lot to work with here, unfortunately, the series is canceled because I think um, overall, even though I really don't like how this issue ended uh, and how this series ended, for the most part, other than a hiccup with Dark Crisis, uh, I actually I enjoyed most of this series, uh, despite, you know, despite some of the criticisms. Yeah, uh, I, again, I tend to agree with you, except, except for I, I like I said, I did enjoy, even though she shows up out of nowhere, and we're not sure why, um, she doesn't have a name. Um, the fact that she's, it's sort of, you know, leaning into the idea of legacy characters. And so I don't mind this new question. Although, you know, again, it's not called question. We don't get a name for her. Um, but when Chubb, Detective Chubb says to her, you're not the same no-face lady I was dealing with a while back. We know that to be Renee Montoya when Montoya was in New York and was offered the commissioner commissionership of the New York Police Department. And the this mysterious character says no and yes it's a bit complicated so no i'm not that same person but yes because i'm a question or the question now if i take it over from one to, i mean yeah I, oh yeah oh, it's a bit complicated and, and chubb saying oh it always is with you masks so yeah how exactly that may play in no no idea so i guess we'll see uh, all right, moving on. Wildcats, book you mentioned previously. We're up to issue number four. Matthew Rosenberg is the writer. Steven Segoya is the artist. Elmer Santos on colors. Farron Delgado on letters. Uh, has, has anything, you know, speaking of cliches, has anything become less or more cliched, I guess I should say, more cliched and less impactful and just a tired plot device has anything become more than that than killing off a character? We're, we're supposed to believe in this issue that Grifter is dead. Oh, no. Yeah. We get that dead. twice this week. Yeah. We get that first in of all, too. Yeah. First of all, Grifter has a healing factor. It's not like, you know, as crazy as Wolverines, which, I mean, please, I may be over-exaggerating this, but didn't I hear, I think I read or heard recently that somebody said that Wolverine – from one cell, Wolverine could regenerate. Wouldn't that mean that, like, you could just take a cell, like, take a cell from Wolverine <laughs> and like put it, put it, you know, in a spot, and it, a new Wolverine would grow? Anyway, uh, Grifter has a healing factor, and even if he doesn't, 
We know Grifter's not going to stay dead. Like, seriously, Ryder, stop killing people. Stop killing off characters. It's boring. It's overdone. It, I mean, and I'm a fan of Matthew Rosenberg. Don't get me wrong. But it has lost all meaning. Killing characters has lost all meaning. Uh, It's not impactful. Don't care. We know it's not going to stick even for an issue. In the case of Batgirls, we'll talk about in a little while. It doesn't even last more than a panel. Um, so don't do it. It's it's not. It's it's been done. T- no pun intended, but it's been done to death. Stop it. Um, other than that, I don't really have much to say about this issue. Uh, I thought it was okay. Um, I'm not sure what this new style of art that Segovia is using. It doesn't l- like when I think of Steven Segovia and his best art. I, I think back to when he was on Green Lantern. Um, with Robert Venditti and how gorgeous that was. This looks like it has some sort of digital filter on it that makes, especially the backgrounds look sort of misty uh, in a way, if you know what I mean. Um, and I, I don't know. I just didn't care for it. The art just doesn't look really sharp. Um, and I also thought the covers on this weren't particularly inspired. So all in all, I felt like a bit of a down issue um, for Wildcats, but Man, I do certainly enjoy the voice, and I continue to enjoy the voice that Matthew Rosenberg brings to Grifter and also to Zealot, who's probably my other favorite Wild uh, Cats character. So, yeah, for me, this was a, this was a bit of a downturn, uh, especially with that death of Grifter. I just had to roll my eyes at the end. But what do you think? Well, you know, it's interesting. I, just, uh, I mean, I've enjoyed the adrenaline rush of the action. Uh, I, I've enjoyed I've enjoyed this series overall, and I continue to enjoy it. And this issue, there's a couple of scenes here that go a little bit over the top, uh, but I will say this: essentially, what what has been happening is that this series started off somehow the Court of Owls is up to something, and the Wildcats stumbled onto a, an operation by the Court of Owls, and it looks like the Court of Owls may have hired the League of Assassins to take out Grifter, uh, in particular Angel Breaker, who is a, who sort of le- runs the League of Assassins or did for a while. The same Angel Breaker, by the way, who resurrected Harley Quinn when Kevin brought Harley Quinn to the to that secret League of Assassins place, and the the same Angel Breaker here ends up confronting and battling with some other ninjas, some other assassins. They end up battling uh, Cole Cash, the Grifter here, uh, who who last issue ended up helping to save the Wildcats in their mission to save an ambassador's son. Now, the Halo Corporation ran by Marlo. Marlo, uh, Marlo of course, sends in the Wildcats. They rescue the ambassador's son. Uh, but Grifter gets lost in that adventure and he ends up in this Middle Eastern country where he's being chased by these assassins. And ultimately here, he's defeated by Angel Breaker and these assassins and he gets the crap beat out of him. Meanwhile, uh, Zealot is trying to talk to Harlow tr- and goes to talk to Void and talk to Harlow and talk to Colt. Uh, these dual Colt sort of robotic humans were, uh, and she wants she wants permission to go to find Grifter because it's always a will there, won't they, between Zealot and 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 uh, Grifter that you know they like each other, maybe even love each other, but won't admit it. And there's a there's a couple of comments here. There's one scene here in particular that I thought was. Strangely, I don't know if it's strangely appropriate, maybe for Wildcats, but maybe inappropriate. There's no adults warning on this. You know, young Caitlin, uh, and, and how old's Caitlin? Is, I didn't know Caitlin was an infant child. I thought she was a teenager. Like, she looks like an infant child here. Like, how old is Caitlin Fairchild? I thought, 
wasn't she a, uh, almost like an adult or but now here she's a child i thought even in an earlier in the first issue i thought she was an older teenager but now she's a child in any event this I, version yeah i think this version of Fairchild is kind of like shazam yeah you know I mean? I, like she manifests her powers and she has the more grown-up body when she's not necessarily using her power she's the younger body that's how i kind of took it yeah because we've seen I, I her in the kind of little girl body previously in the series yeah so so maybe 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 she's a, a maybe she's an adult trapped in a young child body but there's a scene where zealot's looking for for void and void is this almost mostly machine like female who's essentially caught in a moment of shall we say intim- intimacy between these two robotic or two guys who are i don't know their name colt but they're kind of she walks in on a sex act and it just it just seemed like uh i think it was played for laughs and it was kind of funny but oddly maybe if people are just picking up this issue it was kind of inappropriate although void void is a character that you know she even invited she said if zealot was zealot interrupted that intimate moment and she she made a comment that if she knew that zealot was going to interrupt them she would have invited zealot so there's some there's a lot of uh this is very much an adult comic and yet at the same time having having fairchild portrayed like an infant i don't think that was a i don't know if that comes off well i don't i think that was a i think that was a mistake i and i'm a little bit confused you know look i as a matter, I just picked up a bunch of Gen 13 back issues in, in dollar bins, and it's fantastic. Fairchild is an attractive woman. Don't portray her like a child. For God's sakes, she's, she's 17, 18, or in her early 20s. Portray her like the young adult woman that she is, or, by, or, or 17 or 18-year-old. Don't portray her like a child. I thought it was a little bit off-putting. In any event... I there's a, there are some funny moments here. I like Matthew Rosenberg's humor. I like the action here, and uh, and at the end, I think it's uh, I think it's overplayed the whole Azaris thing. We know that Grifter is not going to be dead. Angel Breaker was going to kill Grifter anyway, but when she found out that the Grifter knows Zealot, she 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 was going to they were, they were her plan was to kill Grifter, and just you know, have him be disappeared. But there's a reason why this Angel Breaker sent Grifter back. I think it's because he knows Xana, i.e. Zealot. And I think Angel Breaker is probably going to make a proposal to Zealot saying, come join the League of Assassins and I'll give you some Lazarus resin that can save your friend. So I think that this is Angel Breaker's way of blackmailing the Wildcats in order to save Grifter. That's my guess. Uh, Again, that's kind of tropey too, but I think that's where it's going. But I, you know, again, I've been enjoying this. I've been I'm enjoying the ride. So some nitpick comments here, but uh, you know, again, this is a uh, uh, this this comic still manages to put a smile on my face at the end of the day. And it, there, there was some, you know, you know, I did get a couple of laughs out of this. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, all right, I mentioned Swamp Thing, Green Hell returning finally. It's only a three issue series. This is a second issue. God, it's been almost a year, I think, since the first issue came out. Anyway, it's written by Jeff Lemire. We have art by Doug Monkey. Colors are by David Barron. Letters by Steve Wands. Um, I didn't, in the interest of full disclosure, I did not go back and reread the first issue, even though it had been a long time. And uh, I I think that was okay. You know, from context, I kind of remembered what was happening. So in the current world, everything's sort of falling apart. Plants are dying off. Animals are dying off. Monsters are, seem to be attacking humans. It's almost like the the Parliament of Trees. The 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 Green has decided, 
hey, we're done with humans. They've ruined the planet too much. We're going to get get rid of all the humans. We're going to exterminate them and sort of start over. Not the worst idea in the world. Constantine is trying to prevent that from happening. And in order to do that, at the beginning of this issue, he calls on the Alec Holland version of Swamp Thing to come back from this sort of little pocket dimension where he uh, Alec Holland is with his wife and daughter kind of living in peace, brings him back to uh, our reality and is asking him to fight against the green and what they're doing. When this happens, the Department of Trees goes to Alec Holland and says, hey, we had a deal. You were going to just live out the rest of your life in peace with your wife and daughter. You weren't to interfere. Um, and Alex says that, yeah, Constantine has brought me here. He's bound me to this plane until whatever you guys are doing is stopped. So please stop what you're doing. This isn't the answer. Uh, and in response, the Parliament of Trees removes the power uh, of Swamp Thing to regenerate. So the body he's in now is supposedly the last body he's going to have. Um, and despite that danger, Alec Holland goes and uh, fights for humans along um, alongside this older gentleman and his granddaughter, uh, who were kind of the ones that went to Constantine in the, in the first place to, to ask for help. Um, and so Swamp Thing, Alec Holland manages to defeat one of the monsters that was attacking the humans, but in response, the Parliament of Trees raises a bunch of avatars from the sea, from the vegetation in the sea, to continue the work of the, the monster that Alec Holland defeated. And Holland's forced to confront that army, again, with limited power in the last body he's going to ever have, supposedly. Meantime, Constantine knows that Alec Holland needs help. So he goes to the afterlife and asks for the help of Boston Brand, who it's interesting the way he's uh, drawn here. He's very, in this version by Monkey, he's very emaciated, very thin, very tall and angular, um, which, you know, yeah. you used to seeing him look more just kind of a typical superhero physique. But anyway, uh, Constantine um, goes to Holland to find out or uh, sorry, goes to Boston Brand, Dead Man, to find out where Animal Woman is. Animal Woman being Maxine Baker, Buddy Baker's daughter, um, who is the avatar of the Red, uh, the Animal Kingdom. So uh, it ends with this particular issue, book two, ends with Constantine going to Maxine saying the world needs Animal Woman. So it's a classic team up, you know, uh, Animal Woman or Animal Man, Swamp Thing, think back to classic vertigo stuff and Constantine and what have you. Um, but I just really like the tone of this. I think Lemire really, he just, he has a fantastic turn of phrase when Swamp Thing is first pulled out of that kind of Shangri-La area where he's at, um, you know, living in peace with his daughter and, uh, and wife, he says, you know, first thing I smell when I'm brought back is stale smoke and arrogance. <laughs> and he's talking about smelling Constantine. I mean, you read that line. The line is, the first thing I smell is stale smoke and arrogance. The first thing I smell is, and it goes to the next page, and Swamp Thing's yelling, Constantine, you know. I mean, just that idea yeah. of. If you could describe Constantine, well, stale smoke and arrogant, like, you know, right away exactly who he's talking about. So yeah. uh, I just, I really, really enjoyed that. This 
particular issue really reminded me of how much I love Alec Holland as Swamp Thing. And I know it's early for the other, uh, the other version of, of Swamp Thing that we've had. Uh, what was his name? Kamel? Uh, 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 yeah. Um, Levi. Levi Kamai or Kamal. Kamai. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's a humanity to Alec Holland, uh, which is so ironic, right? Because he is no longer human. Um, but there's such a humanity to him. And it kind of reminds me a little bit of one of my favorite comic characters of all time, who also gave up his humanity and was always trying to finish his mission to get his humanity back. That was Rom Space Knight over on the Marvel side of things, Hasbro licensed property. Um, that, that, that kind of reminds me of Alec Holland, you know, he, he, there's a sadness about his version of Swamp Thing because he, he always mourns the loss of his humanity. Um, yeah. and, I don't think that exists yet with, with Levi. And, you know, maybe it's not fair to compare the two because Alec Holland's been around for decades and Levi's relatively new, but I've never, never felt the humanity reading Levi's story that I feel with, uh, with Alec Holland. So it reminded me of, of why I enjoy Alec as much as I'm not a huge Swamp Thing guy. I, I enjoy it. Uh, and I'm, I'm a, I love dead man. So whenever he shows up, he's great. Um, and, Lemire writes a fantastic Constantine with, you know, really great lines. Uh, when Deadman and Constantine go to find Maxine, Maxine's followers, I guess you would say, these villagers that she sort of protects are, are trying, they don't want her to be bothered. They're like, what the hell do you want? And Boston's like, I'm sorry, I, you know, he didn't give me much choice. And they say, well, she's not seen any vis- visitors, Constantine. Go crawl back under a rock. And he's like, no, I, you know, I need her to help me save the world. And the villager's like, well, it's, you know, you go see her at your own risk. probably call your eyes out. And Constantine says, oh, I'm in astral form. I'm no dummy. You know, <laughs> yes. this, those fantastic lines, those little, I wouldn't call them throwaway lines, um, but lines that people, you know, don't necessarily think of. It, like that line, it doesn't move the plot forward. But it adds so much context. It adds so much tone and, uh, you know, just a kind of a lived-in feel for the story. And Lemire's fantastic uh, with that. So, yeah, I, I loved this issue. And uh, I'm very curious what the next issue is going to bring. And we don't have to wait. Uh, it's, it's supposedly March 2023. And I actually talked to David Barron over the weekend. Uh, and he mentioned he just finished coloring issue three. So. Uh, hopefully it won't be a big wait like we had between issues one and two, but uh, what'd you think of this? Uh, I enjoyed this. I, this was actually, you know, for, for me, when I, I haven't seen the, I haven't, I don't remember reading the first issues and I just remember bits and pieces of it. Now that, Oh boy, I'm going to read this and be lost. <laughs> and I wasn't lost at all. You can pretty much figure out exactly what happened in the first issue. And it's it, it's embodied by the conversation that Swamp Thing has with the Parliament of the Trees. And the Parliament of the Trees that bestow the power of the green on Alec Holland that makes him become Swamp Thing, they basically say to him, look, uh, we know that Constantine brought you back to defeat us and we're, we're wiping out humanity. But understand we're wiping out humanity because humanity poisoned the earth. 
And they actually have a compelling argument in my mind. That's that's the theme that I like about this. It's like, well, you know, we can put down the parliament of trees. Yes, they're wiping out humanity. And the, the young girl in the story here that Swamp Thing sort of resonates, that the Swamp Thing has a connection with because this young girl uh, reminds him of his own daughter. Uh, you know, she says, well, I didn't do anything. I didn't do anything to the earth. Yeah, but humanity did. Your forefathers did. Your, your ancestors, you know, your, your, your ancestors did. I, or, I mean, I mean, the, the fact of the matter is, is that humanity has poisoned the earth and it's dying and the and the the green right, rightly so uh, by if you look at the from from nature's point of view is wiping out humanity well swamp thing wants to save the children he wants to save humanity and that's all well and good but the and the parliament makes him an offer and says you know what I'll tell you what if you just go back we made a deal you've broken our deal Nature is nature. Don't mess with nature. You, you're, you're the swamp thing. You're the, you, you are our avatar of the green. How do you not know this? How can we got to tell you the logic of what we're doing? We're wiping out a poison on this planet. It happens to be a life form called human beings. Go Look, but we'll be nice to you. If we'll, take, we'll send you back to your paradise with your daughter and, and, and your wife and you'll live forever. No big deal. But just get out of our business. But he won't do that. And as and as punishment, because they can't defeat Swamp Thing alone, they actually uh, team up with the Red, and that the Parliament sort of teams up with the Red, and also teams up with the Rot. At least that's the impression you get. So you got the Red, which is uh, ironically enough, that's why Animal Woman at the end here is feeling a disconnect on the Red. That something's wrong with her. Her connection to the Red has been jeopardized because they're teaming up with the Green and the Rot to, to wipe out humanity. And um, so I, I find that very interesting. And also. Our, you know, for those of us who are Flash fans, our last, our last, the last time we saw Maxine Baker, we, she's that little redheaded girl that is friends with uh, Jay and Irie West. And so to see an older version of Maxine, uh, who's now a future animal woman, one thing that stands out to me is that she's got black hair. She doesn't have, you know, I, or maybe she's just in the shadows there, but I was... Uh, I was hoping that she would have more dark, you know, really bright red hair. I'm surprised that it's so dark, but maybe it'll be more red in the next issue. But in any event, uh, just to remind some people, Animal Girl, Maxine Baker, she's uh, she's the all mother. She's the giver of life. She was born to be the avatar of the red and she's got a connection to all animal life. And so with Sw Alec Holland having the connection to the green, her connection to the animal life, they ought to be able to defeat the rot and the parliament of trees. But how that's going to be done, we'll have to wait till next, uh, the third and final issue. But overall, it's, it's, a, it's a really good issue. And I love Doug, Doug Mankey's art. Doug Mankey is just fantastic. Very, very good issue overall. Yeah, agreed, hundred uh, percent. All right, up next we have Danger Street issue number three. There is a fantastic Ramona Freedom cover for uh, the B cover. Definitely picking that up. Living Legend, uh, written by Tom King. Jorge Fornes is the artist. Dave Stewart on colors. Clayton Cowell on letters. Um, this was a really quick read, actually. Um, and again, it has that classic uh, Tom King flair. Uh, especially love the scene with High Father and Darkseid there talking to Metron, and uh, Metron, you know, in his flowery way, building himself up, and <clears throat> Darkseid just saying, "Metron, you know, would you get on with it? Because I, I would enjoy killing you." Yeah. <laughs> uh, I met Metron talking about moving beyond the the Source Wall and what could possibly be done there. Um, but yeah, like I said, relatively quick read. Feels a bit like a setup issue, but I like what is being set up very, very much by uh, by Tom King here. 
Um, you know, just, you know, we talked when we talked about the very first issue, we kind of mentioned all these different characters that have shown up in, you know, first issue special during its short run, whether that be the, the dingbats of Danger Street or Warlord or the, you know, blue skin Starman or Creeper, the green team, just all these different characters, uh, Lady Cop, who are so different, right? Who are so disparate in, in tone and, and the world they live in. Some are crime noir, some are aimed more toward young readers, some are more traditionally superheroes. In the case of Warlord, you're talking fantasy. King is weaving a narrative that somehow brings all of these characters that you never would think it would be possible to tell a story that made sense let alone a story that was compelling and that you wanted to keep reading. But just the fact that he can put them all in the same story because they are so wildly different, you know, we're talking about the new gods and it, you know, completely huge in scope and epic and cosmic. And then we're talking about Lady Cop, right? This woman who's just, you know, working her beat as just a regular policewoman with no superpowers whatsoever. And yet they're, they're these two different characters, two different sets of characters, along with all the others, in this story that King is writing and Fornes is drawing with uh, a real sense of uh, realism uh, and, and grounded art. Uh, and it makes sense. It makes sense. You buy it all. You don't stop for one second to think, well, why would, you know, you have a story with Lady Cop, the most mundane, you know, non-superpowered character you could possibly think of in a, you know, book with Dark Side. Uh, that, that just doesn't make sense. But King makes it work. And uh, again, I think it's a real credit, first of all, to his knowledge of the DCU and his love for these more obscure characters. I mean, these aren't even B, B or C or D listers, right? Like we're talking XYZ listers here with some of these characters. Um, Warlord, you might say, is maybe the most high profile just because he had the, a series that ran for the you know, longest period of time. Um, Darkseid, obviously, very well known. But he, uh, again, King is crafting a story with these characters that makes sense. And I, I'm just, I'm super impressed whenever I read one of these issues, um, how he's tying them together. And, and bear in mind, the, the threads haven't all come together yet, right? It does, there are different storylines, different plots going on, but you can tell, you can sort of see the writing on the wall read between the lines, um, that they're all going to come together in the end, it makes sense, you know, whether it's Atlas's death um, or the death of, uh, you know, the, the uh, dingbat of Danger Street that Starman accidentally killed, Starman's guilt, Star-Lord and Metamorpho, or Starman and Metamorpho and uh, Warlord's desire to join the Justice League, Lady Cop's investigation. Like, you can see that it's all sort of heading toward, you know, one central point, Um and it's all going to tie in with Atlas's death and the accident that happened in the first issue with the young uh, character of Dingbat of Danger Street being killed. Like it's just it's masterful work. And again, the fact that he's that Tom King is doing this with these characters that most people have never even heard of, it's just really impressive. Um, and again, the the art from Fornes is just tone perfect for this. So this might be the most impressive issue of uh, Danger Street yet just because of how King is weaving it all together. Like, it's just, again, really, really impressive. So what were your thoughts on this? Uh, well, 
it, it's got more interesting, I think, that because the tale once again the story the story is moving forward in terms of how all these sort of disconnected characters sort of connect. And one of the uh, just to be clear, the the narrative method upon which that Tom King is using in telling this story, he's telling this like a fairy tale, and uh, and the narration the narrator is actually the helmet Naboo. Now this isn't entirely clear in the narrative, but. Because you only get a clue at the last panel of each issue, because it shows it shows the helmet Naboo sort of talking, and it's surrounded in yellow, and then all the narration, the exposition throughout the issue is in yellow, so you know that it's the helmet of Naboo telling the story, and it's telling the story as if as if it's a fairy tale. So the when the narrator uses the words princess, he's referring to Lady Cop. Princes, the princes are the warlord and starman. The good lads are the dingbats of uh, Danger Street. The gallant knights are Manhunter and the bodyguard of the green team. The monsters are the green team. And there's this movie director, movie director, Mr. Sunbeam, that shows up. He's referred to as a monster as well. And the ogre of the story is the creeper. And whenever you hear the narrator use those references, that's who he's referring to when you when you compare that to what's on the page. And I, I got a better appreciation of the stories that I read it a couple times to appreciate that. And meanwhile, when uh, Warlord and Starman in the first issue, they called upon, they were calling upon Darkseid. They had a master plan to call upon Darkseid using Dr. Fate's helmet to, to bring before Darkseid, defeat him, and impress the Justice League so much that they would become members. Unfortunately, uh, Metamorpho ends up uh, being uh, supposedly killed. Uh, and then one of these, uh, Starman accidentally kills one of the uh, the dingbats of of D- Danger Street and and in this issue D- uh, War- Warlord and and uh, and and Starman actually make a deal with this movie director and in return for uh, Warlord giving up his sword of Shambhala uh, to the movie director the movie director will give him some some information on how to uh, resurrect Metamorpho and so because uh, they want to bring their friend back and meanwhile. Atlas, somebody, somebody has to replace Atlas and Metron at the beginning goes to the source wall because apparently there's a break in the source wall. He traveled to the source wall and he discovered that, you know, Atlas, of course, Atlas is the God that holds up the sky. Well, now there's a new person on the earth that has to replace Atlas to hold up the sky, whatever that means. And we don't know who this is, but Darkseid and Hyfar, they're really concerned and they got to, we, we, they got to locate this person. So who is this new God that's going to replace Atlas to hold up the sky? We really don't know. But, um, uh, in any event, um, sorry, just a little bit of break here. Okay, are you back, Jace? I'm back. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry about okay. everybody. No worries. Uh, in, in any event, uh, so just continuing on, it's uh, we get all these moving parts coming together. We've got uh, Lady Cop continuing in her investigation. She now knows that one of the uh, a person of interest uh, is that she got from her investigations and previous issues. She knows that it's Starman as a person of interest, and she she got a list of all blue skin heroes and and it 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 wasn't lost on Lady Cop here that uh, that all the suspects in the, the murder of this young kid, this this Dingbat member are all heroes. It's it's all a bunch of heroes that are primary suspects, not 
not traditional supervillains, but rather DRC-list heroes. And so it's interesting in that respect. Meanwhile, the Dingbats, they want to they wanna get revenge and they want to kill Starman, this blue-skinned guy who killed their friend. And all these parts are moving in, in unison alongside each other. And it's it actually makes for an interesting read. And Orion... The, the son of Darkseid, who's raised by Highfather, Orion has is on a mission now sent to Earth by Orion and uh, by by the a joint mission of both Darkseid and Highfather to send Orion to Earth, presumably to locate the new Atlas or this new character that will hold up the sky. So there's a lot of moving parts here, but it does it is interesting. You know whether or not Tom King uh, hits the landing, well nails the landing, we'll have to see. But so far, um, uh, I've gotten I've enjoyed more of Tom. King's stories than than the other way around. So, um, yeah. So I'm, you know, I'm I'm interested in this. I'm hooked. So, uh, and and I agree with you. The cover here, cover A, is looks fantastic. Yeah, uh, I mean, I can't not get the Ramona Fraden cover just because she's such a, a living legend. But uh, all right, moving on, we have uh, Batman Beyond the White Knight number eight, um, which is the final issue of this. Uh, Batman Beyond story, I, you know we we talked last time. I think you and I both really enjoyed the the penultimate issue last last month's issue of this Beyond the White Knight. I do sort of feel on some level that I won't go so far as to say this this issue's unnecessary, but it, it kind of continues that feeling of last issue really being the kind of climax of the story. You know, the, in in this particular issue, they confront Derek Powers. You know, they defeat him and uh, his army of um, of bat robots, if you will. But it all feels not necessarily like an afterthought, but it, it feels a little bit unnecessary, if you know what I mean. Um, it, it really feels like last issue was really the end of the story, and this one this is a little bit of an epilogue to some extent. Um, Again, not to say it's not enjoyable. I did enjoy it. And, you know, we'll have to wait and see what comes next because we do know that there is more to come uh, based on the uh, kind of little essay in the back that Sean writes about. Plus, there's a final page that shows um, this world's version of Superman, I guess. Um, And we have Diana Prince show up uh, as well. So... We know there's a, a Batman, uh, what, Sean Gordon Murphy-verse, I guess you'd say, world's finest version coming. And there's also a story that's going to star the Joker and his two kids. Um, that's revealed by Murphy as well. Uh, Generation uh, Joker, it's called. Yeah, Generation yeah. Joker. Yeah. So that stuff's still to come. We'll have to see how that all plays out in the long run. Um, but ultimately, I, th- I thought this was okay, but... You know, I think the last issue was the highlight for me. Um, and this was sort of the, the cleanup, if you will. So what were your thoughts? Well, I enjoyed this issue a lot more than you. And I, and I actually enjoy this issue. Last issue was really good. And the fact that I enjoy this issue even more is a compliment to Sean Gordon Murphy. Uh, I like this because this issue was just all the good guys kicking ass. That's why I liked it. It was, everything came together. You know, all the, you know, Derek Powers was soundly defeated. Blight was soundly defeated in this issue. And there was some tropiness and there was some cliche stuff. And the dialogue, there was a lot of humor here. Some of the dialogue was a little, you know, um, maybe a little bit too jokey, but 
I enjoyed it. Uh, I actually really enjoy the hologram Joker, this J- Jack Napier as a, sort of like the hologram who actually pretends to rest on seats and pretends to have friction and be able to interact with objects because he, he thinks it's funny. Uh, but he's really a projection of Batman Beyond's uh, you know, power suit that, that, that uh, t- uh, uh, Terry McGinnis wears. And uh, just the, uh, the way, the, the rapport between how Harley Quinn and Bruce Wayne act like an old married couple here. And you've got in this final battle against Derek Powers, who's, all, who's Blight, uh, we've got Duke and Gone teaming up and Batman and Harley with uh, uh, Batman Beyond teamed up with the Joker, Dick Grayson and, and, uh, and Dick Grayson and Jason Todd, you know, f- uh, in the Batmobile. And you've got the JCPD versus the GTO. All these, all these battles that have been building up for a while culminated in this issue. This is like the last, this is, this is almost like the last 20 minutes of the third act of a, of an action movie where things are finally getting, you know, getting together, like the, the end game, so to speak. And that's why I enjoyed it because I just feel rewarded because it's been a long journey here. It feels like it's taken a long time to get to this eighth issue. And we, we even had like collateral issues because we got a, we got a red hood issue. And I think we, you know, and it just feels like, feels like a while since uh, this thing started. And so I just feel rewarded. And then to get at the end and to see all of a sudden, you know, if it's one thing that we've wanted, we've, we've talked about for years, we've talked about, you know, a Murphy verse, give us some more of a Murphy verse. What, what's, you know, what's going on elsewhere and to have Diana Prince, you know, Diana Wonder Woman, although she's not, she doesn't, I don't think she's an Amazon here. She's just, she's an FBI agent and she's willing it's identified, it's made clear here that Bruce Wayne doesn't have to go back to prison as long as he works for the FBI to help them investigate this new alien person by the name of Superman who's uh, who's in Kansas or wherever he is. And so right away, you've got something very different here. We got an older Batman, a younger Superman. You got a, you got a, what appears to be, I'm not sure what, what nationality this agent Diana Prince is. She looks... You know, she could be African-American. She could be something else. I don't know. But she looks just beautiful and, 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 and yet strong and intimidating in her own right. And I got I'm just curious. I'm immediately curious what's going on. This is a new trinity that we've never seen before. I'm already looking forward to this. And this I wish I had this kind of excitement for the dawn of the DCU as opposed to just a Murphyverse. I personally would like to see three or four comics in the Murphyverse, quite frankly, and just dump three or four of the current DC uh, lineup. And uh, but that's just me. But this put a smile on my face. I was quite happy with this. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, okay, up next we have Batgirls. Uh, this is written by Michael W. Conrad and Becky Cloonan. We have Neil Gouge returning on art. Uh, Rico Renzi does the colors. Frank Vitovic on letters. Um, I, I will say, you know, we have talked in the past when it was Jorge Corona art. We weren't big fans of it. There were also some... Um, some previous Neil Gouge issues. And, and again, we felt they were kind of juvenile. I will say that this Gouge art feels a little more polished than we've had on the series in the past. Looks a little more like his art that we've, that I have seen, uh, particularly on the flash sort of somewhere in between that more juvenile style that we've seen with Jorge Corona and Gouge himself on here and, you know, a more mature DC house style. So, I'm not going to say sit here and say one is you know better than the other, but in terms of the tone and the, kind of the subject matter, 
as Rocky and I have both talked about how it seems like this um, this title is they want to you know address some mature themes and it feels like it's supposed to be fitting into the you know main DC storyline somewhat in, in terms of tying into the Batman mythos, um, but yet it feels so juvenile in in the way the art is rendered. And that's, that's a problem. Um, so yeah, I think that it, it works on, on that, that level, uh, that this art is a little better than we've seen in the past, um, from Gouge. As far as the story itself, I mean, it, a little cliched, um, you know, Stephanie Brown, we know she got kidnapped by her father, the clue master, and he's going to make up all the excuses, you know, as he typically does. And, you know, he certainly doesn't, you know, disappoint on, on, on any of that level. Um, and he even goes so far as to accidentally shoot his daughter, but she's only dead for, you know, just the barest of moments as. Uh, Death Lazarus doesn't matter. Death doesn't the matter. Yeah. Yeah. The Lazarus <laughs> resin that, uh, that Cassandra Kane just happens to have on her that, you know, we saw her. <laughs> get last issue um is there and yeah it's just I, I don't i don't know what to think about batgirls i really don't to be honest it feels like they don't know what to think of it either do they do you, do you want it to be aimed at younger readers do you want it to be aimed at longtime batman fans um i, I mean we're, we're talking about the 15th issue of this series and the identity of the series itself i think is still not firmly established uh yeah. so that's that's a problem. And a lot of it has to do with the art. Um, I think if, if it had been set with this tone of art from the beginning, um, at least we would have, you know, some level of consistency, but it's bounced around so much um, it, that it makes it just, it makes it really hard. So yeah. Is it the worst issue of bad girls? No. Is the best issue? No. Fall somewhere in between. And um yeah, I, I I feel bad for this title. I really I really do. I feel like these characters deserve um, a little more stability, you know. Yeah. So anyway, well, what, what what were your thoughts? Well, I agree, and I'll be maybe a little bit more direct. This lacks the direction. I, the best issue so far, in my opinion, was two issues ago. An issue I think it's thirteen when when. It was a Cassandra Kane, or rather, it was Stephanie C uh, Brown in the body of Cassandra Kane confronting Lady Shiva. There was at least some interesting character moments and commentary between Lady Shiva and showing her her desire and her her caring for her daughter, and that led into nice with last issue with Lady Shiva still keeping an eye on Cassandra Kane and even chopping some of the legs off of some ninjas that were chasing Cassandra Kane as she's looking for Stephanie Brown, who she ultimately finds in this issue. And she, by, by reading and properly deciphering the clues that were left in the last issue, which was advertised, solicited as a, as an all silent issue, although it wasn't all silent, but it was the last three issues I, I think have been the best of the series so far, uh, from issue thir 13, 14, and now issue 15. Now, one of the criticisms I have here with this is we don't learn anything about Clue Master. And, you know, look, I'm not a huge Clue Master fan. To be honest with you, I don't think anybody is. I think Clue Master basically was placed on the map. Clue Master's claim to fame is that he is Stephanie Brown, the spoiler's father. <laughs> so that's why he's uh, that's why he's famous to begin with. Really, other than that, he he was kind of a joke. But what I don't, what I really don't like, what was done with Clue Master here is that we 
there's no insights into Clue Master. There's no interest uh, flowing from him. We, there's no suggestion of any kind that, that Clue Master was at any time, at any point, a good father. Uh, there was no flashbacks to moments of when he was a father to Stephanie. Stephanie just talks about how she was always abused. And Clue Master is literally at the end of this issue. He's he's claimed to be that he, he you know that he's he was uh, basically he's insane that his that uh, he was you know he he needs help and he's all distraught and he he actually shoots and he kills he kills Stephanie Brown he does it accidentally and Stephanie Brown is resurrected by Cassandra Kane who conveniently has Lazarus resin but it's a it's a cheap gag it's a cheap effect and i was really looking forward to some flashback moments where Show me, give me some insights as to the background of the relationship between Clue Master and Stephanie Brown. How, what's the relationship like? What's their memories? What shared memories do they have? Are, how are their memories of the same event different uh, insofar as maybe Clue Master thought he was being a good father, but he was really being abusive? Be, you know, show me something. Show me a little bit more creative. Uh, be more creative in the storytelling in terms of what are you trying to say? Instead, it's just Stephanie Brown being super strong because she was just abused. We get we get no no true actual development or information about the past whatsoever. That's I guess all left for future issues of of Clue Master, who basically is uh, and even we're not even told. We're just told that Clue Master himself was resurrected, a mysterious person. And resurrected Clue Master. We don't know who it is. And it was he was dead for three days and he came back after three days. Somebody resurrected him with, you guessed it, Lazarus resin. And Stephanie Brown is dead in this issue for three minutes and was revived by, guess what? You guessed it, Lazarus resin. I mean, this, uh, I mean, I mean, uh, just a heads up to future DC writers out there if you want to do something different, maybe. Take out Lazarus resin out of don't mention Lazarus resin on in any storyline moving forward, like for at least 10 years or five years. Give us a break already. Be more creative. Think of something different. And 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 I can't just blame Clunrad for that. There's other writers as well. I mean, we just saw it in Wildcats as well, or likely Lazarus Resin will be used to resurrect uh, the Grifter. But you know, talk about talk about going down a, a road that is, uh, I think, is is you know enough already. Talk about beating a dead horse. And finally, this issue ends. But but, but I want to be clear. I want to be fair here. These these last three issues are, have been the best of the series. And you know. Maybe we don't get a lot of information on Clue Master, but at least we get potential set up for some future story. I would have liked more substance, but it was okay to get this. This the final panel ends with Grace O'Callaghan, a podcaster that we met in pre- in previous storylines. Somebody drops off a decapitated like there's a head with an envelope attached to it. I mean, just a gruesome scene to end this issue on, which which harkens back to your your earlier comment, Jace, about how you know this <laughs> is. On the surface, this seems like to be a, a a comic book, maybe for for kids or a younger crowd, and then we get these dark moments and you know a decapitated head. I mean, holy moly! But in any event, uh, again, this this is a comic series just in search of an identity for all its characters, and uh, it's unfortunate. But I will give props; these last three issues I've enjoyed more than the rest of the series. Yeah, and the, the issue that you're talking about, um, you know, it. it uh, continue the story that was in the annual and the annual was the first time we really got art that felt like it was like yeah. mature art, <laughs> you know, that it wasn't the, the more juvenile Neil, Neil Goose style or Jorge Corona's juvenile style that he tries to make gritty by just ink splatter. Um, which, you know, I talked about that so many times it <laughs> drove me crazy, but yeah. uh, anyway, moving on up next, we have Lazarus planet, dark fate, 
number one. This is another uh, anthology series. We have four stories in here. Um, to me, this is far and away the weakest book of the of the week here. Oh my god, it was so short. You go, there. you go. The first, the first, the first story is is a huntress story. Um, it was okay. It just it felt like I, I didn't. I won't say it was bad, but it just I didn't understand. It, it just didn't feel necessary, I guess, at the end of the day. It's called Whisper of the Moth. It's written by Tim Seeley. Baltimore Rivas is the artist. Ivan Placencia on colors. Carlos M. Mangual on letters. Uh, it's basically Huntress traveling through the Arkham Tower. And um, we see some of the rain filtering into the tower, into the basement where apparently there is some horrific criminal being in prison. And it's that's a little problematic for me. Like the whole idea of Arkham Tower, right? Uh, some people want to call it Pennyworth Tower was get get a, away from Arkham, right? I've talked so many times about why there's no way they would name it Arkham Tower or put it in the middle of Gotham City with all the negative connotations to that name, right? It just, it's so asinine. But regardless of that, it, you know, it's clean break and mental health and bringing it out of the shadows and whatever. And here we are, Back to that trope of dark and dank and mysterious and hidden and, you know, the the monsters that live in Arkham. And it's like, why did, then why – DC editorial, then why did you bother to get rid of Arkham Asylum if Arkham Tower is just going to turn into that? Because, again, we see the rain creep uh, leaking in through this vent and uh, dripping into this area, uh, this door with – uh, you know, kind of a grid on the, the glass, danger, do not wake. Um, you know, who, who is this to be continued summer of 23? What what monster is it that it's going to be uh, mutated by the, the Lazarus rain? Um, it's again, it just feels old. It's been done. So why are we heading down this path again? And what the heck does it have to do with Huntress? I guess we'll, you know, we'll have to wait and see. We know that in the... Um, Riko Tamaki run of Detective Huntress, and the, it's not mentioned here, but Huntress gained some powers from the, um, I don't even the pathogen, the, the whatever it was that that um, that parasite, that symbiotic parasite that. Oh yeah, I forgot about that. All the, yeah, mutating all the different people of uh, Gotham in the sewers and what have you. Um, and she gained the, the ability to kind of sense and track where that was going on and all the violence surrounded with it. But it hasn't been mentioned since, even yeah. though she's shown up a few more times. So whether they're just forgetting about that and moving forward with some other sort of Huntress storyline, I, I guess we'll have to wait have to wait and see. Second story is uh, a Doom Patrol story. Let me comment on the stories before you go to the next one. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. Just on the Huntress thing, on the Huntress issue, uh, I agree that this. I don't really see what the point of this was. If she's just going through Arkham Tower. It feels like a repeat. She's just apparently the entire Batman family is unavailable, so she's by herself. Which again, continuity wise, makes no sense because most of them are indeed available. So it doesn't line up continuity wise. But you know, forget about trying to get continuity in the DC universe now. But you know, she goes through and she, it's literally like a who's who she, she, she goes through and this is wasted pages, completely wasted pages of her just beating up. Uh, and again, it's Huntress. So she, I don't even think she's capable of doing this, but okay, let's, let's throw her the bone, but look how powerful Huntress is. But she takes on Anima 
Utopia, uh, uh, the uh, the Monarch of Menace, uh, Killer Moth, Mor- Mor- the Cavalier, Zodiac Master, Big Top. And, you know, this is uh, and apparently this big thing is that the Lazarus reign apparently gave Killer Moth the ability to manipulate the other patients to do his bidding. And that's supposed to be a big deal. And but it isn't at all a big deal at all. It's not a big deal at all. And apparently, you know, the Arkham Tower, of course, is so well built that rain can, you know, leak into the vents and everywhere else. And and then and then it ends with basically, you know, as you said, this Lazarus rain, you know, dripping into one of the other cells. And for what? Like I it's this is a this is such a wasted story. And it's it's such a wasted story. We learn nothing either about hunters and you nailed it on the head. Uh, the hunters are supposed to have an ability to see through the eyes of serial killers because of of what happened during. You know, it was actually that's actually an interesting power for hunters to have. And again, we we don't see or hear any of it, Ed. It's just it's just so sad. But what a waste of a story! But <laughs> yeah, really, really problematic, as I said. Yeah. So, um, but the second story, uh, Storm Damage, written by Dennis Culver, drawn by Chris Burnham. This is the same creative team that's going to be on the ongoing uh, Doom Patrol uh, story, and so I guess uh, the, our series that's coming up later from Dawn of DC. So I guess this is kind of pre of a preview of, of what to expect. Um, I'm not a particular fan of Doom Patrol, um, but we do see Elastigirl, we see Robot Man, we see Mr. Negative, um, we see the Chief. So uh, if you're a Doom Patrol fan, if you're curious what that series is going to be like, I guess pick this up. Uh, the art from Burnham is fantastic, I will say that. Um, so yeah, all in all, it was, it was probably, you know, it's a solid, solid issue. So, uh, yeah, the only thing which I found interesting is that the, the chief, uh, the, the chief has been replaced by, uh, crazy Jane. So, uh, <laughs> the, and crazy Jane has 64 different superpowered alternative personalities and shapes that she can, that are inhabit her body. So she's got an interesting power set, crazy Jane. So chief, uh, the chief Niles Calder is, is not in this I- iteration of the doom patrol of the unstoppable boom, doom patrol, which is interesting. Uh, there's this new character. I think it's a new character for me, but it's been a while since I read doom patrol. This flit character is apparently a transporter. Because as Amanda Waller would tell you, even though this isn't a Suicide Squad team, you you always need a transporter on the team. So you have one here for the Doom Patrol. And essentially, this involves them uh, saving the life of uh, who becomes a new member on on their team. This this, uh, character who goes... I don't know if he even his name is Simon and he's a former sergeant that is sort of uh, he becomes this psych he becomes a fungus uh, he's got fungal roots growing all over his body and he becomes a psychedelic manifestation he, he 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 can with his fungal powers he can he can infect people and get, have them psychedelically manifest their own worst fears and. And while Negative Man has an opportunity to kill him, because they're the Doom Patrol, the unstoppable Doom Patrol, they're kind of like the X-Men. They they like to bring in the outcasts of society to, to help them and because they're outcasts themselves. And, and they, they want to help this young Simon, this young sergeant, uh, who the, the general of the story wants the Doom Patrol to kill. And so, of course, he ends up being a member of the team. And uh, and then at the end, it, it shows that they, you know, the, the chief, the new chief, Crazy Jane, shows up and she's wearing a mask. And she's got an interesting look about her, and she basically promises that they're going to uh, uh, apologies here that they're going to well 
I guess they're not going to they're, they're not going to put up, you know, if the government has a problem with them, the government can come after them. And so this is sort of a nice little segue into Dennis Culver's iteration of the Doom Patrol. I, I listened to an interview by Dennis Culver and he seems to be very, very much into the Doom, Doom Patrol lore and he seems very passionate about it. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to it and I'm, I'm hoping that uh, he seems to have a lot of interesting ideas uh, in the interview. So I, I hope that they bear fruit in this series uh, in the uh, months to come. Yeah, we'll have to wait and see how that uh, plays out again. I'm not the biggest Doom Patrol guy, so I'll have to, uh, I'll have to reserve judgment on that. So, uh, anyway, the next story is called Eight Seconds of Still Force. Still Force referring to that force that the turtle taps into that's sort of the opposite of the speed force. This is by A.L. Kaplan. He he or she, I'm not sure if it's a female or a male, both mm-hmm. writes and draws it. Uh, letters are by, uh, and colors it for that matter. Letters are by Hassan Atzman Elhow. I have to admit to, I, I won't go so far as to say I was utterly confused, but even more so than the first story, I felt like, what the heck was the point of this? We're introduced to a new character in, I guess, some other part of the multiverse, because um, we get the Avery character from The Flash here. Uh, this new character is called Circuit Breaker, uh, and apparently they're a, uh, maybe a non-binary character. I wasn't cl- clear on that e- either, because we're told that the Circuit Breaker's adventures are going to continue in DC Pride 2023. Um but I, I just had such a hard time getting into the story because I don't – this is the first time I'm seeing these characters. And I don't know why I'm supposed to care because uh, the story itself wasn't – you know, on its own, wasn't really compelling. So I, it was a – I struggled a little bit with this one, I got to be honest. So uh, I don't know. What did you think, Rod? Yeah, and uh, part of my struggle with the story has to do with the, uh, the, the art. I thought the art was uh... – Who's the artist on this? Uh, well, it's A.L. Kaplan, the same same as the oh, writer. writer. Okay, uh, I didn't know that. That the art didn't help me, uh, but I'm I'm gonna. I, I think Kaplan's art isn't much to blame. Let me just be very critical. I hate the Still Force. I think the Still Force is a stupid concept. It was, in fact, most of the con- concepts introduced in in the Flash, uh, whether it was by Williamson and then built upon by Scott Snyder. You know, Still Force, one of the seven sort of destructive forces of creation. The Still Force being this force of entropy, which basically, if I was to summarize the Still Force, well, the Speed Force makes you go really fast, and the Still Force makes you go really slow. Such a stupid concept. Some things are so simple they shouldn't even become comic. Uh, put, put, put it in a comic book but that's me being overly critical but this jules jordan is a he's basically an actor he's an actor who portrays the flash in and he basically he's an actor and he's got a friend who's a fashion designer and during the lazarus reign and and here's the thing it this doesn't take place. This does take place in the mainstream universe because it's the Lazarus reign. Unless the Lazarus reign reigns on other Earths, this is taking place during the Lazarus event. So this actually takes place. Uh, you mentioned, Jace, that Avery, who was a Flash from another universe, well, Avery did show up in our universe in 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 the pages of uh, Flash, in the pages of One Minute War and Flash. So Avery appears to be... Uh, I think arguably in, in our universe or in any event, it's a little confusing because it's the Lazarus reign that gives J- Jules Jordan the power to channel the still force to absorb energy and then to shoot energy out. And uh, what makes this so confusing is that 
in, in this very short period of time, the Kaplan, the writer Kaplan, and he's also the artist, as you said, he tries to convey this, the background of Jules Jourdain. And apparently Jules Jourdain is all conflicted because his parents are, if you can believe this, they're archaeologists who are, who work for a corporation. And the corporation has these, his parents, these archaeologists go to find archaeological digs under the guise to find secret desert places so that they can hide nuclear waste. And he and he and he doesn't like his parents. He's got dad, mom and mummy and daddy issues because his parents are bad because that's what they do as if somehow that's a bad thing. Uh, you know, nuclear energy is safe. Storing nuclear waste underground is safe. You do it for three or four hundred years. I, I, I got the very distinct impression that there was a misunderstanding of the storage of nuclear waste and maybe a, a, a misunderstanding of the whole politics of the whole thing. But in any event, it. All this tried to cram into it. The other, the other problem here that, and this is so much is crammed in here, is that artistically it was impossible for me to figure out what was going on, and it had to be told to me through the end. And the reason why I'm going to cut Kaplan some slack here is that when when you how do you draw the still force? <laughs> I mean, at least when you draw the speed force, you got lightning. What do you do when you draw the speed well, the still force? Everyone's still. It slows people down. It's a boring. It's a. It, I, I find it's, I hate the still force because there's nothing exciting about it. And artistically, there's no way to draw it that looks exciting to the reader. And boy, is that on full display here. What a, what a terrible use of the still force, a useless power. I don't like it. Uh, I would prefer that this character have been, have been given a different power. I don't like the power set. This character, I guess, has potential. I mean, you know, for all diversity, Jules Jardine has potential, sure. I just wish that there was he had a more exciting power set than just accessing steel force energy. And, and again, I'm, I'm being harsh here, but this character looks really odd. He's got like big eyelashes, I guess. Does that mean he's trans or does that mean he's, uh, I guess maybe he's trans, or I guess maybe probably non-binary. Uh, the, there wasn't a pronoun used there that I believe the pronoun used was he, uh, when his, uh, part, when his fashion designer friend spoke to him. But again, it's not bad, but simply too much crammed into one issue. Also, the name Circuit Breaker just seems really dumb. It seems completely unrelated to the the, the power set that he has. And, um, you know, and Avery is just showing up out of the blue. This is just, this to me, this, this entire Lazarus Planet anthologies, all they are, it's like having a bunch of mud in your hand that's kind of mud, most half mud, half watery water half derwin just thrown against the wall and whatever sticks oh there you go we have our new batch of heroes and and it's just deeply unsatisfying but again i said this before in the last every time we review lazarus planet anthologies we we have to wait for these characters to become more interesting moving forward because when we're introduced to them they are thoroughly uninteresting in my view and i hate to say it but you know there's possibly one exception coming up in this issue but we'll see yeah, the last story is called The Envoy, a spirit world story uh, from writer Alyssa Wong. Somebody named Hanning is the artist, Sebastian Chang. Colorist Janice Chiang is the letter. Uh, so it's an all Asian uh, creative team. And the, the character, is, is, I think it's pronounced Xanthi, uh, who's a magic wielder in the DC universe. I don't ever remember seeing her before. I'm not familiar with spirit world at all. So... I, you know, if, if this character, if Spirit World has been a thing before, I apologize. Let me just, Sandra, 
Yeah, let me just interject there before you give your review. Spirit World is a Jack Kirby property. Before Jack Kirby wrote The Fourth World, he wrote one gotcha. issue called Spirit World, and the second issue was never published, but it's that second issue has been published in a, in a trade paperback along with the first issue of Spirit World. Spirit World is, in fact, a Jack Kirby creation, and DC has brought back the Spirit World. Uh, I, I, you know, again, just like they, it's, it was basically a completely failed exercise because it was even before the fourth world, but they brought it back hoping that it's going to uh, catch on this Spirit World, and they've introduced the these mangalake, this mangalake character, I guess, with the sword and all the likes, hoping that it will sort of catch on. But, but that's so that's the origin. Was, was the spirit world when Kirby originally created it? Was it grounded in this like Asian? Mythos, <laughs> you know? I don't know. I've not read it. I, when I googled it online, they have they have pictures. They have a picture. They they show the you know now some speculators are jumping on it. It's, there's a there's been a slight. Uh, uptick in the value of it because it's a it you know it, it it was a sales failure back in the day. Well, just like frankly, you know, Fourth World didn't sell as well as it could. A lot of Jack Kirby's DC work probably it didn't sell bad, but it could have sold better. And um, so I don't know. I've not read it, but you can see pages of it online. And those li- for those listening, if you want to just Google Jack Kirby Spirit World, uh, and you can see for yourself some of the early work. But uh, you know. Hopefully this will maybe improve upon that concept, but it's worth perhaps worth checking out. I don't know. Yeah, so hard to again know you know what to make of this because we're introduced to this Xanthi character. Cassandra Kane shows up. Uh, Constantine shows up. What the spirit world is, how this all ties together, I don't know. I will say that you know DC certainly is. Um, diversifying their character base. I mean, we've seen things like Monkey Prince do very, very well. He's been a big part of uh, the main Lazarus planet story, which has been a lot better than these anthologies, frankly. Um, and so how this Xanthi character and what exactly her powers are uh, might tie into that, I you know, I guess we'll see. Is, you know, are re- do readers these days even know, you know, young readers that you're trying to hook, do they even know who Jack Kirby is? Are they going to, you know, pick up something called Spirit World just because he wrote the first issue way back when? I sort of tend to doubt it, to be honest. I doubt it, yeah, no. Yeah, but I will say that the art here was fantastic. So was the color work. Um, But again, you know, these last two stories I I struggled with because I I don't have any context. I don't, I'm not grounded in these characters at all. I don't know why I'm supposed to care. So, yeah. Well, I I will say this, that this is, Xanthi or Xanth character. I, I I apologize if I'm butchering the pronunciation, but she does look pretty cool. I like the way she looks. She, she actually looks like I, I'm one of those guys. I'm 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 the typical guy who loves the American Western comic book tradition, and I've. Uh, but I have to admit, some of the best stories I've read in the last five years have been the few manga that I've read. So I, I I'm late on the manga train, but this is exactly what DC should probably be doing. Manga completely outsells. American in North American comic books and you know if they can get on the bandwagon I mean this is the this is a, a type of character that DC sh- ought to be exp- 
exploring or at least experimenting with. What they should not be experimenting with it is in an anthology like this. This should be she should have a mini series of her own. It should be in a manga style format, and and they should think outside the box in order to pull more people into DC Comics. Having this type of character that pulls in Batgirl and more more Japanese Asian characters, even Constantine, and you know, and it, with with that big oversized sword, which is typical of a lot of the um, My Hero Academia sort of style storytelling. This has a lot of potential, but completely squandered in, in, in what they're putting it in. Why put it in like this? And why link it to Lazarus Planet? I think it was. I think it's a mistake. Not that it necessarily hurts it, but it's another example of you got to take this character. I mean, it's it is fascinating. She's got so much potential here. She's from the spirit world. We learn a few things about her. We know that she's she's previously died, and she she has a, she can travel back and forth from the spirit world to the land of the living, the land of the dead. Uh, she's visiting her mother, her grandmother's grave here. Uh, she died as a kid, but came back. She has, she seems to have this ability to, um, uh, 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 use talismans, uh, which are objects to defeat the dead, to defeat these corpses. And a talisman is any object that you imbue with a particular power. In this case, it appears to be pieces of paper, yellow paper in here that she, I, I, it never made any sense. This story never made any sense that Batgirl shows up and suddenly Batgirl knows how to, knows to bring yellow pieces of paper that have writing on them and these are talismans and apparently this Xanth character sold some magic papers to John Constantine and ripped him off and got one up on John Constantine so she's even she's even capable of tricking John Constantine so she's there's a little bit of a you know she's seems to be quite adept and kind of a cocky attitude about her so I'm kind of interested you know to, to see maybe learn more about her uh, but again all of this is crammed so much into this one issue, only to end with Batgirl trapped in the spirit world, as opposed to Zant, the name, the, this new character Xanth. So it's it'll be interesting moving forward. You know, when are we going to see this character again? It says at the end of the issue, it says it does say, I believe, uh, to be continued in Spirit World number one. Well, that's good. At least this is getting its own series or its own mini series. Because I'm actually curious if they do that right. I think we probably we might have something new here, and and maybe a new potential member of Justice League Dark. But hopefully, they, I want I want DC to maybe do maybe try the manga style with Spirit World. Keep that. Keep the same uh, writer, Alyssa Wong. Keep that uh, Henning, the artist. Keep this particular style and try to attract. Even have them come out in black and white. You know, I mean, heck, if it worked, you know, maybe it'll have more success than Gotham, you know, Future State did. Uh, you know, try to get some of that manga crowd over to DC Comics. Wouldn't that be something? But Yeah, I agree. Uh, as much as I wasn't invested in these characters, I, yeah, this is Anthony character. She just, like you said, she just looks really cool. Uh, and yeah, I, I agree with you about the manga and, you know, leaning into that. Um, because she does have the giant sword, which, you know, again, very classically manga. So yeah, there's, um, there's potential, like, don't, you know, don't squander it, DC. There's things you can do here, uh, for sure. Uh, okay. Last book we're going to talk about in detail, Icon versus Hardware, number one, uh, written by Reginald Hudland and, um, Leon Chills, pencils by Dennis Cowan and Yasmin Flores Montanez, inks by John Floyd and uh, Montanez, as well as John Stanisi, colors by Christopher Sotomayor, letters by Anne World Design, 
Um, yeah, I'm curious. You you go first, Rocky. I'm curious. Uh, <laughs> okay, I what, will. What you thought? What you thought of this before I give my man? Thoughts. I got. I'm. I'm. Uh, overall, I'm going to say that I'm disappointed in this issue. Uh, now, but let me start with the positives here. I like the fact that right off the bat, we're given synopsis of what previously happened in the Icon and Rocket miniseries and what happened in the Hardware Season 1 miniseries. So we're, we're caught up to date, and that's really important, and it's really good. And it helped remind me of why I enjoyed those. I, I, I enjoyed Icon and Rocket. In fact, I, I think you share my sentiment that Icon and Rocket was my favorite of the Milestone series last year for DC. And uh, Hardware, less so, but it was still entertaining enough that I got something out of it. This issue, so I was looking forward to this series, Icon versus Hardware, and I, and it it's it has the moniker, you know, Worlds Collide, Icon v Hardware, and in the in the '90s they had a Worlds Collide series where the Milestone universe collided with the DC universe, and we had where we had Icon versus Superman. Well, in this Worlds Collide, we've got Icon versus Hardware because they're keeping it within the Milestone universe. So the big boys of the Worlds of the Milestone universe, they're the ones that are going to be battling each other here. But the setup here, I left much to be desired. What first I'm going to deal with, uh, um, rocket. It starts with rocket, uh, who is, uh, Augustus, who is icon. He sends, uh, Raquel, who's rocket to a boarding school in, in the Swiss Alps. This is three months after the big bang, the big bang being that protest that led to all those kids developing superpowers like static. Well, she ends up in, in Switzerland because Icon wants her to be, uh, he sends her to a rich boarding school because he wants her to get accustomed to how, accustomed to how the, um, how the ultra rich on earth think. He wants her to get accustomed to that. And, and now, but while she's in this boarding school, I mean, everything she encounters at the boarding school, it's very, very heavy handed. Everything is, you know, it's white, rich kids. All of them are spoiled and bad, black, bad. She's the black minority kid, but she's perfect. She's got straight A's. Uh, she beats up the bullies. She knows everything. She's got nothing to learn at the school. You know, she's just there basically to learn and basically show up everybody. And that's kind of how it sort of comes across. And it, she's, you know, and there's only one friend, person where she really seems to befriend. And it really seems that, that, this, that this is uh, very much a world where, you know, it's hard not to get the sense that uh, writer Reginald, Reginald Hudlin and, and writer Leon Chills, you, you, you get a sense that they're bringing a lot of biases into the story. And hey, that's fair. That's fair. I mean, that's they're the writers. That's their prerogative. But it did feel kind of heavy handed here. And there wasn't a lot of balance. There wasn't a lot of nuance in, in the message, so to speak. Um, and but then. You know, where, where it really I thought disappointed me was that the central the central theme of the storyline is hardware ends up essentially stealing from a government's facility the some of the technology uh, from the original rocket ship that Icon uh, came to Earth in, and he develops and he and he builds on the the science of another individual. Uh, whose name is unimportant, quite frankly, and he develops time travel. <laughs> like, time travel. I never saw that coming. And Hardware decides, just out of the blue, to travel back in time and prevent the protests from happening that led to the Big Bang, that led to the development of those kids having superpowers. And 
and it creates a butterfly effect such that when he travels back into the future, the present, he discovers that there's a war going on between the metahumans that, that ultimately will lead between the battle between Icon and Hardware. It's very much like the whole Barry Allen goes back in time to save his mom bit. It's kind of like the flashpoint story for the Milestone universe. And I can't help but feel that it feels unoriginal here. This really feels like it's been done before and it, it doesn't feel particularly sophisticated. It feels sloppy. It feels almost kind of cheap. I hate to say it. I I really didn't. I didn't like this. Uh, I and I don't even know. Like I'm, and I can't believe hardware would be this. Dare I say stupid? He's a scientist. He's what? Would Tony Stark do this? Maybe. Well, may, maybe he would. But hardware, you know, this would hardware be the type of guy? Because he goes back in time to stop Alvin. You know his his employer, Alvin Industries, from, from you know, creating this gas that's released in the protest. And he ends up, his boss ends up being killed prematurely. And so his boss uh, ends up getting killed. And so that's how he changes time. And so the whole idea, you know, being that, uh, oh my God, these things are happening now. Uh, it's the butterfly effect. He even goes back and meets his own, his past self. And there's no repercussions here. We don't know the rules of time travel. It just seems to be willy-nilly in it. It feels jarring. It feels disconnected. And it feels completely disconnected from the first part of the story where, Rock, where Rocket, where Raquel is actually in boarding school. I, so I'm really curious as to how all these pieces come together. But it feels really sloppy right now. And um, I'm, not, I'm not particularly impressed with, with how this, is, this seems to, I don't know. It just, it just sort of rubbed me the wrong way. This is my first of all the... I've been a fan of the Milestone universe, uh, but of all the issues from from when, uh, over a year ago, or a year and a half ago, when all these issues started, this is my least favorite issue so far. I was, I was surprised at how disappointed I was. But I, I hope, I, I don't know if it can be salvaged, but I think the premise, the time travel premise, just, I think is just the wrong narrative choice. But I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I have mixed feelings because I, I get what you're saying, right? Like, first, first of all, the whole story feels a little bit disjointed. Um, yeah. So, I, you know, I don't know how uh, Hudland and Chills collaborated on this. I mean, they were the ones that wrote the uh, hardware story, you know, before, and that seemed to, to work pretty well. Um, I think they were the ones, pretty sure they're the ones that did did it. Either way, regardless, they've worked together before. It was either on um, – the icon and rocket story or i think yeah now that i think about it, i think it was icon and rocket uh, not hardware but either way they've worked together before so i don't know how exactly how you know if they did something differently because along with the art which the the, the two artists here their styles are individually are very good they don't necessarily mesh that well together um you know it's classic dennis cowan art which is you know very visceral and gritty the montanez art is you know a little more smooth and uh, you know, has less detail. And so they don't, you know, they don't necessarily flow well together. And I think that contributes to the feeling of, you know, these two different storylines that don't necessarily mesh that well together either. You know, like you're right with the Raquel story feeling like it's trying to do one thing, bring into light these social injustices and ideas of have and have nots, which, you know, the milestone is known for and, you know, yeah. I, I, I appreciate that sort of storytelling. You know, these are minority creators. These are 
you know, persons of color that are behind this. So that's something that's near and dear to them. And they can certainly speak to it better than somebody like me. Um, and I, but I feel there are stories that are worth telling. That's the Raquel story. And then you have, you know, the story of Curtis Metcalf of hardware, like you said, you know, I, you don't want to use the word stupid, but, and again, it's this idea of the milestone universe being separate. So obviously he's not aware of Flashpoint, but there are certain classic things that you're going to do in a superhero universe. And so it's not that I want to give them a pass for it, but they haven't had a chance to do this in the, in the milestone universe, you know, go back and yeah. Yeah. Would, would I change things? Would, would that be the right choice? So I sort of get that. And then that also goes hand in hand with this idea that, and again, we're going back to like classic early Marvel age where it was just a thing back then, whenever, you had that initial crossover, whether it was Spider-Man and Fantastic Four or Spider-Man and the Hulk or uh, Captain America and Iron Man, they would fight, right? It would be a misunderstanding. And even though they were heroes, they would fight first before they came to the realization, hey, we're both actually good guys and we're on the same side. Um, and it's again, it's classic and it's tropey and it's a bit of fan service because, you know, especially back then, the beginning of the Marvel age when these – heroes were immensely popular that would be the thing well who would win in a fight between spider-man and the hulk <laughs> and it would be a way for uh you know the the publisher to give those fans a little bit of what they wanted uh and we know the answer to that question whenever any two heroes meet whether it's hulk and thor or hulk and juggernaut or spider-man and colossus or whomever right stanley famously said it himself you know who's going to win in a fight between whomever whoever the writer wants Whoever needs to win in order for the story to make sense, that's who's going to win. Um, and so in a way, you know, I want to not be too harsh on, you know, Milestone and, and this book and the creators involved because this these characters, they, even though they've been around for a long time, they've been off the table for a long time and they weren't ever really around long enough to do those kind of classic things like, hey, who would win in a fight between Icon and Hardware? But at the same time, it's like, you know, readers, our tastes, comic book fans, they've become more sophisticated over the years. So if you're going back to those old cliches from the Silver Age, you know, you got to, you know, to, to your point, you got to freshen it up. You can't just do the same old thing. It can't, it's got to be, it's got to feel fresh and not feel so derivative. You know, like you were saying, this just feels like it's been done before um, and it's not necessarily bringing anything in. And if their idea of bringing something in was, is to talk about those social issues, again, that's perfectly fine, but it's the weak part of the comic, like I was saying, because it, it feels so disparate. The two art styles feel very disparate and the two Storyline. stories feel, you know, the, like, and, and, you know, maybe hopefully fingers crossed, we'll look back on this first issue and it will sort of make more sense later. And we'll see how maybe there were some connections there that we didn't necessarily catch on to as the story goes on. Um, but yeah, I would I I wouldn't go so far as to say I was disappointed because I didn't necessarily have expectations for this. Um, but I will say that this it, it didn't impress me. I'll, I'll put it that way. Um, yeah. But hopefully it gets better. Well, you know, it's funny because I, I thought and, and I realized that 
I, I made the cardinal mistake of having expectations, but building on the previous storylines, you know, Icon and Rocket, they rocked the boat by getting rid of the world's drug trade and up disrupting the world's economy. And, and then hardware, I thought, well, maybe hardware has a more of a hard line. He, you know, he's got a different approach. He feels he believes in justice and everything else. And I could easily imagine them having a different a difference of opinion as to how you might interfere with world's world affairs and almost like a civil war war type sure sure but but, and and now you could argue that that's maybe cliche too you know uh, you know in fairness and so the time travel does provide a different element to that so uh so you know hey you can point i I, i'm pointing a finger at the writers here i got three pointing back at me when i try to play script doctor but so it but hey it is jarring and like you said while even though it's a you know it's a I feel like my expectations have been subverted. <laughs> so, but who knows? You know, we'll see how this ends up. So maybe there's going to be further uh, plot twists here that will uh, sort of, you know, prove more interesting moving forward. Yeah, but I t- totally agree with you. Curtis Metcalf's, you know, supposed to be this brilliant scientist. And like, for lack of a better term, he comes across as a real lunkhead here. You know, like cl- yeah. just clumsy. This idea of time traveling back to make change. Just so... So clumsy. Yeah. And- yeah. He even says in the issue, he, Curtis Metcalf even says in the issue that he doesn't concern himself with the butterfly effect. He he actually specifically says something yeah. to that effect that he doesn't he doesn't care. He's just doing it. And I'm thinking like, really? You're a scientist and you're just doing this? Yeah, like, 100%. Like just yeah, really. Don't, 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 like ready, fire, aim. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Definitely not looking before he's he's leaping, right? So That's exactly right. Yeah. Oh, it's but again, I mean maybe the motivation, maybe you know, something else will will come out in the long term of why he's being so impetuous, I, you know, I guess we'll see. Yeah. Uh, anyway, that's going to do it for the issues. As I mentioned that we talk about in detail, there are a couple of other single issues. Rocky mentioned one of them, Batman the Adventures Continues season 3, issue number 2. We also have the Batman Spawn uh, special from uh, Capullo and McFarlane that we reviewed a few weeks ago. It has an unplugged edition that's out this week uh, that's basically black and white. Uh, And then also the Batman and Scooby-Doo Mysteries number five is also out. And then in terms of collected editions from DC this week, uh, Wonder Woman Volume 3, The Villainy of Our Fears, that contains that milk storyline that Rocky loves so much. Uh, Batman Beyond Neo Year which was a fantastic series from writers Jackson Lansing and Colin Kelly. And it also had uh, some really, really strong art from Max Dunbar. We know there's more Batman Beyond coming from that uh, creative team later this year. So if you missed that, highly recommend it. Um, And then also Batman, the Dark Knight Detective, Volume 7 uh, is out. And then the Aquaman 80 Years of the King of the Seven Seas, has its deluxe edition hardcover. So that's basically just a reprint of that um, uh, that special, that 80-year special that came out last year. Uh, it's getting a, a hardcover. That was basically an, an anthology. Uh, reprinted uh, a lot of classic stories from his first appearance in Morphon Comics 73, a bunch of his adventure comic stuff, um, some issues from the 1962 Aquaman series, the 86 Aquaman series, the Legends of Aquaman special from 1994, some issues of the 2000 series, and some issues from the New 52 series. So if you're an Aquaman fan and you didn't pick up um, the 80 Years of King of Seven Seas previously, you probably want to grab this one. So 
Yeah. Uh, all right, all Rocky, right. book of the week. Uh, well, my book of the week, I'm going to go with um, the Batman Beyond the White Knight. I, yeah, I, I, I loved it, and I, I got to, I got to give it props because, uh, um. Yeah, it was just it was a nice payoff to to the series. It, it was a it was a cl- it was a close call, but I have to go with Batman, the, the White Knight. Yeah, it was all out action, uh, and yeah, you're right. The characterization solid, planted some seeds for more Sean Gordon Murphy verse stuff moving forward. Uh, but yeah, I just I just didn't enjoy it as much as the previous issue. My pick of the week, though, uh, surprising enough. Because again, I mentioned I'm not the hugest fan, hugest fan of this character, but Swamp Thing Green Hell number two, uh, for me, was just really, really impressive. I enjoyed it so much, um, and I think I, I, I don't know that I would have enjoyed it as much as I did if we hadn't, you know, read and dove so deep into the Rom V Swamp Thing run with Levi Kame, yeah. um, and and seeing the difference between these two different Swamp Things, you know, I just. The humanity of Alec Holland, which I think Lemire captures very, very well. Um, just like, man, I never really appreciated that about the Alec Holland version of Swamp Thing before until I had a different Swamp Thing that didn't have that. Um, and then realized I missed it. And it was a nice a nice thing to have back with the character. And, you know, somebody who can write John Constantine well and bring the snark, I'm always going to enjoy. And then the art team of Monkey and David Barron. Uh, the line work and the colors are both superb in this, uh, in this issue. So yeah, it was a no brainer for me. It wasn't close. Yeah. Oh, right on. So, uh, yeah. So what do you got anything coming up? This got, yeah. I was going to say anything you got coming up. Uh, I huh? probably have a couple of interviews with some creator owned projects, uh, that should be out. Um, and hopefully things that, the day job are going to start slowing down. I'll be able to get a little more content out because pretty much only been doing the DC spotlight with you lately, but hoping to change that real soon. What about yourself? Yeah. Well, I finally got to doing some more indie reviews with, uh, I guess Jason now of the weird, the weird science crew. And, uh, we reviewed, uh, Really enjoyed Immortal Sergeant by Joe Kelly and uh, Ken Namira. Uh, was really good and uh, Nightclub. And it, yeah, we, yeah, we reviewed an, a number of issues, and that's uh, just on. It's easy to see. Just go on my my video list there on uh, on the Comic Boom uh, YouTube channel. And no, it was really good. It's nice to get back into the indie. Uh, do my indie spotlight. It's, it's sometimes hard to coordinate things. Been busy, been busy at work and what have you, but it's, you know, like, because the fact of the matter is I'm, I'm enjoying indie comics more than I, I am enjoying DC on a, on a, I guess, percentage basis in terms of the, in terms of bang for my buck. I love DC. I'll always love DC, but consistently I'm probably loving, liking to loving about, I would say, 75 70 to 80% of what I'm reading indie wise whereas DC I'm solid at the 50 to 60% range so but we shall see moving yeah, forward yeah it's it's too bad I've been really enjoying the bad idea stuff the issue that came out last week the finder um from Christos Gage art by Thomas Giarello mm. if you guys haven't read it and you have the opportunity to if you if your comic store happens to be a bad idea destination store oh my god it's like just a beautiful Beautifully illustrated story, first of all. It leans into horror a little bit, leans into superhero a little bit. It's got that hammer feel vibe, you know, like mm. old school horror movie where, you know, the women have curves and you're showing, you know, it's not gratuitous, it's not salacious, but it's sexy, you know, and it's interesting and it's fun. So highly, highly recommend that. Maybe may my favorite bad idea comic of this 
recent oh, wow. uh, second second wave. So that's good. Uh, anyway, that's going to do it for this episode, everybody. Appreciate you joining us as always. Don't forget to head over to YouTube. If you don't subscribe to Rocky's channel already, just do a search for Comic Space Boom! Exclamation point. Subscribe, ring the notification bell, leave some comments, like this video. You guys know what to do. really helps with uh, visibility. Conversely, if you always check us out on YouTube and want to be sure you don't miss out on any of those other creator interviews that I do on the Audio Only Comic Source podcast, just do a search for the Comic Source wherever you get your podcast from. We're there, uh, and we appreciate the support. So uh, hope you guys enjoyed it as always, and we'll talk to you next time. Catch you later. You can find the Comic Source Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com. Or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash the comic source. Do a search for the comic source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening and we'll talk to you next time.